This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Today, I'm going to have a conversation uh, with one of my all-time favorite uh, authors, Marilyn Robinson, who's going to, to join us uh, in a few moments. But I wanted to say a few things about her before she joins us, because there may be some of you who, like I am, you, you read everything that, uh, that Marilyn Robinson writes. Some of you may have, like I do in front of me right now, a stack of Marilyn Robinson books that are uh, that are marked through and have book flags and highlights all through it. But there may be some of the the others of you who uh, aren't familiar with Marilyn Robinson. And uh, what I'd like to say to you about her is that she's a very unlikely figure in many ways. I mean, this is uh, someone who's a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning author. She was interviewed uh, by the President of the United States, Barack Obama, in the New York Review of Books uh, a couple of years ago. And she didn't interview him. He interviewed her, <laughs> uh, which I don't know that I've ever, I've ever seen that happen before. But she's able to speak, it seems to me, to all kinds of people, whether they're very, very secular or whether they're, they're very religious. Uh, and I think there are some reasons uh, for that uh, because she tends to have sharp intuitions about what it means to be human and what it means to consider uh, how it is to live a, a human life. Uh, she's a mainline Protestant, uh, United Church of Christ. Uh, she and I would probably uh, disagree on on uh, many, many different uh, theological uh, issues, but she's someone that has benefited my life in many ways by these little vignettes that stay with me. Uh, I remember at one point I was going through a time of, of suffering, and I just happened to find a line by Marilyn Robinson uh, when she's talking about uh, when you're going through a time of suffering, remembering that uh, everyone has gone through suffering and that beautiful things can come out of this. It's something I knew, but the way that she said it at the moment uh, struck me. Another thing was she wrote this in her novel, Gilead, uh, several years ago, and it's, it's something that has stayed with me forever. This is a, a minister, Iowa pastor, who is hurtling really toward death at the time, talking, and he says this, this is an important thing which I have told many people and which my father told me and which his father told him. When you encounter another person, when you have dealings with anyone at all, it is as if a question is being put to you. So you must think, what is the Lord asking of me in this moment, in, in this situation? If you confront insult or antagonism, 
your first impulse will be to respond in kind. But if you think, as it were, this is an emissary sent from the Lord, and some benefit is intended for me, first of all, the occasion to demonstrate my faithfulness, the chance to show that I do in some small degree participate in the grace that saved me, you are free to act otherwise than as circumstances would seem to dictate. You are free to act by your own lights. You are freed at the same time of the impulse to hate or resent that person. He would probably laugh at the thought that the Lord sent him to you for your benefit and his, but that is the perfection of the disguise, his own ignorance of it. That that passage has lodged into my psyche uh, in some really inconvenient ways uh, when I'm having uh, conversations that I don't think I have time for at the moment or, or when I'm having uh, encounters that seem very uncomfortable or distressing or even enraging to say, what does the Lord require of me in this moment with this person that he has sent to me? That's the sort of thing that she examines and unearths and and speaks to us about. So let's talk to Marilyn Robinson. Well, I'm happy to be uh, joined here with Marilyn Robinson, one of my all-time favorite authors. I read everything that she writes, whether it's a novel, whether it's a collection of essays, whether it's an article in in various publications, and so I cannot believe that I'm actually talking to her today. So you'll have to you'll have to sort of bear with me as I go fanboy uh, here uh, a little bit today. Thank you for being with me uh, today, Marilyn. Well, it's a pleasure. I had given your book to a friend, Gilead, and had recommended it very strongly. And I was surprised that when she read it, she came back and said that she was waiting all the way through for the reveal. And what she was expecting was that uh, John Ames, the, the minister in the book, would be revealed at some point as sinister. And so she, <laughs> she almost had to start back over after she realized that wasn't going to happen to reread it without all the, the suspicion. And it seemed to be that there was something kind of parabolic in that, because I think in the background are all the scandals and frauds that we sometimes see uh, associated with with clergy, uh, but also just a basic cynicism. And it seemed to me that much of what you write about implicitly in your fiction and often explicitly uh, in your essays is a deconstruction of that sort of of cynicism, of the idea that everybody really is just motivated by self-interest. Would that be fair? That's very fair. Yes, indeed. I think that that's such a toxic idea, and it's—I mean—it makes people mean-spirited. I—I I just can't imagine why it is is so durable in the culture, so much repeated, so much. You know, I mean, we're we're being taught. We have been taught for a long time to be cynical, suspicious about virtually everything, and you know, forgetting that that makes people cynical toward us. You know, I mean. Mm. It's, it's applied so universally that it's as if people are shy to attempt to speak authentically because it's as if they're setting themselves up to be revealed, you know. Hmm. 
Well, I'd like to explore a little bit, on the one hand, this going on in sort of the the secularized modern world uh, with the idea of uh, selfish gene and and those sorts of ideas, as well as the kind of Freudian, I have to explore all of my uh, motives uh, all the time, and there's something dark and hidden behind everything, which you argue in, um, I think it's in in, uh, What Are We Doing Here? collection of essays, that you really can't build a, a society off of that, but also within the church. I think there's a, a great deal of suspicion of one another and of ourselves even within the church. I think so, too. It's amazing that you have one has the feeling of alienation between the society at large and the church, but in fact, they really mirror each other very strongly. You know, I think that many of the same traits <laughs> occur in contemporary religious thinking or occur in the evasions that many contemporary religious people attempt in order to, I mean, they're basically, they are conceding the truth of the ideas that they fear, and they go into evasion strategies Mm. (laughs) in order to, to protect themselves, in effect, from these ideas, which if they simply looked at them directly, uh, would seem trivial and wrong and bizarre in many cases, for example, you know, the Freudian self. You mention uh, in one of your essays, you you talk about writing explicitly Christian uh, themes and that someone asked you, aren't you scared to do that, to write about Calvinism and about uh, all all of these uh, various things? And and you, you were really struck by that. And it seems to me as I read that, that that is something I think many uh, Christian people face, in whatever arena they're living in, is this sense of fear if I talk about these things that matter to me. So you you really haven't faced that sense of being being thought of as strange or odd or subversive by being a Christian in the outside world? Not at all. I mean, I have, you know, <laughs> I have, my books come out in China, Japan, and mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, people are you know, they're interested in seeing a major tradition of religious thought dealt with seriously and in art, you know, which is simply what people did for a thousand years before whatever strange silence it is descended on Christian intellectualism, as you mentioned. Hmm. Well, you... I mean, it's, I find it perfectly welcome. I, you know, I, I don't think I could have happened upon uh, you know, a sort of centering um, preoccupation that would have found so much receptivity all over the world. I mean, it's not, you know, in Italy, my books are read. And, you know, um, I encounter no rejection on the basis of it. Hmm. Well, and it's not just Christianity that you talk about. You're you're out to recover some really scary uh, figures uh, to to most modern people, John <laughs> Calvin and the Puritans. Uh, yes. What led you to say I want to explicitly talk about these figures? Uh, well, you know, I mean, there are these little accidents of being assigned, you know, part of an essay by Jonathan Edwards and finding out that there are beautiful ideas in it. You know, that sort of thing that makes it the the sort of um, stereotype of Edward's so trivial and so wrong, you know. And uh, I became very aware in the course of my education of how many important people are treated so dismissively 
that the book is closed on them. You know, nobody actually knows what Calvin thought. Nobody actually knows what Edwards wrote. And the list is very long of these these people who uh, acquire this strange cultural significance as being epitomes of what is boring and unlikable and retrograde and so on. Um, it it's it has a huge impact on the culture because so much of American civilization, especially, uh, disappears behind this eclipse, you know. Hmm. And you find it everywhere. I mean, it permeates the culture in a way that you sometimes don't think anything does, you know. Everybody knows what to say about John Calvin, but nobody has read him, you know. Hmm. Well, and you mentioned also that Jonathan Edwards, most people think of uh, of someone who preach sermons about spiders, and, and yet uh, you talk about, uh, at one point, I can't even remember where right now, about reading that footnote of Edwards, and I was expecting it to be, I could think of any number of of, uh, of essays that I was expecting it to be, but it was on moonlight. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, the doctrine of original sin descended. <laughs> hmm. There it is, moonlight, you know. Um, no, he's a wonderful, he's a beautiful writer, and he is, you know, I think every philosopher will say, although perhaps they can't cite <laughs> chapter and verse, he is the greatest American philosopher. Hmm. And uh, how in the world, if if that is true, even if you find spiders on every third page, how can you possibly neglect him in the way that he is, or how deride him in the way that people do? Hmm. Well, and and uh, it seems to me that the the idea that you observed there of of God continuously creating and God continuously present in creation really plays into this theme that you talk about so so often of grace. And I, I was just struck reading the the trilogy how many times you go back to that question of facing the future on the basis of of grace. So there's Glory says at one point about her her father, I believe, grace seems to answer every question as far as he's concerned. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you know, that's, I mean, that footnote we were talking about, I mean, that was really a seminal moment in my mental life. I've really been sort of living off that ever since, you know, the, 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 uh, how you can understand this, the stability of being and the freedom of God simultaneously, you know? Hmm. I hate determinism in every form feels very false to me, but I'd never found my way around it as a way of thinking. And of course, I was being taught, you know, models of psychology and so on that are highly determinist. Almost every version of modern thought is determinist. And then when I read that, I thought, yes, being is stable and God is free. These things are simultaneous. Hmm. It seems that the grace that you are talking about so often, that's a theme so often, especially in, in your fiction, is something that doesn't... Um, I, I was trying to think about Lila, uh, for instance, in terms of a typical... If this were an evangelical uh, fictional piece meant to win people to Christ. Lila probably would have been someone who had this very dramatic uh, turnaround and and everything would have been darkness until she came into the church and then everything light uh, after that. But the the grace in the life of Lila is so much more complicated 
and and so much more real in in my view. She's she's someone who has genuine traumas and horrible things in the background, but she doesn't turn into a caricatured saint after that either. Right, exactly. She takes from I believe that God gives us interesting lives. <laughs> hmm. And that we make from them what we, you know, I mean, given the will, given the grace, we make from them what we can, you know. Uh, but not, no life, you know, with them in those terms, no life is simply to be dismissed or disparaged. Who knows what will come of it finally? I mm. mean, you know, that's my Calvinism, I know, but people are on their way somewhere. Mm. That's a very rare perception these days when we're accustomed to hearing people yelling at one another on cable television and, and <laughs> on the radio and, and so forth. And one of the things that strikes me, and I, I quote this so often, is just a, a little section in one of your essays where you talked about the way that a narrative of decline uh, can be stimulating like a, a horror movie or a panic attack, you say. And that rings very true to me. Uh, I was talking to someone years ago about a church split, a congregation that had become very angry with one another and just all sorts of, of drama. And I said, what's at the root of that? And the person who was telling me about it said, well, they're bored. He said, this is... <laughs> this is I think that's this, very profound. <laughs> this is kind of the shadow side of the, the revival meetings where you know, people, people needed something to do. So they would go to a revival meeting. And, and in this case, people needed something to do. So they uh, engineer conspiracy theories about one another and, and, and fight with one another. Do you see a way, uh, especially when, when that, that does seem to be the entire culture now of a kind of bungee jumping of controversy for the sake of <laughs> elevating ones. How do we get around that? Oh, well, I think, I mean, one thing that I really uh, think is missing from religious culture and from secular culture, although I don't really, I'm not comfortable with the idea of secular culture. We don't know what people think. Mm. A lot of people are much more religious than anybody simply observing from outside would would know, which I think is, um, you know, again, an important qualifier to a lot of disparaging things that are said or thought. But, um, you know, Bonhoeffer has that phrase, costly grace, and I really, or cheap grace. <laughs> mm. And I truly feel that, that the act of grace from the human side is difficult. It's an expenditure. It's a demand that one places on oneself. It's always easier to do the not gracious thing or think the not gracious thought, you know? Mm. I mean, I, I think that if if a sort of ethos of costly grace were instilled in us, we would find it alarming rather than satisfying to make up dreadful stories about one another and so on, you know? Mm. I don't believe in conversion experiences like bolts of lightning, but I think that as you go through life, you learn, if you're fortunate, that you have the capacity for grace and that it's an in, it, it enlarges itself and enlarges your life, actually. you know. I mean, if you actually do something gracious and you know it is, even if you're completely silent and invisible from the point of view of what's happening, that's a joyful thing. Mm. You know, and I think it, the joy of the joy of the capacities of the self, intellectual and and artistic, but also 
in terms of the capacity for acting graciously, we have forgotten. Hmm. I mean, people do not enjoy their lives in a very essential way. They do not because they can't find themselves to a place where they feel as though they have, you know, a wealth that allows them generosity. And if, if that only means, you know, the ordinary kindnesses that one has the opportunity to engage in. You know, the setting that your trilogy uh, in which it takes place, Gilead, if one thinks about those communities right now, we tend to think of those small, uh, more rural communities as being conservators of, of that kind of kindness. People know their neighbors. They, uh, we, we've idealized that in popular culture with Mayberry and, and, and other things. And yet right now, uh, one looks around and sees the opioid crisis and uh, skyrocketing uh, unemployment and a foster care crisis and, and these sorts of things happening in those communities that, that really do feel as though they're existentially kind of coming apart. Do you see that? Is that is that the case where we, we're sort of seeing a hollowing out of of rural America? Yes, I think it's been it's been going on for a long time, and you know, and and seems to be accelerating and likely to accelerate even faster with these new. You know, we we're not going to sell soybeans to China. That's a terrible thought for Iowa mm. and many other states. But in any case, uh, the nature of development of agriculture has simply made it so that a very small workforce is actually needed now relative to the past, you know, when most people were employed in agriculture. And uh, people are very loyal to the place and the culture that they have. You know, I mean, other people, there's something that exasperates me because I grew up in a very small town myself, but people passing through think, oh, there's nothing there. Why don't these people leave, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't, you know, I mean, I can certainly speak to the these very intense emotional bonds that can keep you in a place where it's not easy to live. You To, to abandon it is to kill off a way of life, basically, and a lot of people don't want to do that. But then they get themselves, you know, they get problems like, you know, injuries that make them take opioids and so on, you know, the usual avenue. And... Uh, you know, it, it's they have every difficulty keeping the economy together, and then they have these other problems that always come with people being under too much stress and having too little, too little to look forward to or to form their lives around. Hmm. Well, I, I appreciate the way that you emphasize communal bonds, and, and that's certainly something we're, we're seeing as a disconnecting of people from one another that leads to that kind of despair. But you also spend a lot of time implicitly in your fiction and explicitly sometimes in your essays talking about the good that comes with a kind of individualism, a kind of integrity. And uh, I I was struck by at one point you were talking about uh, Idaho and and the West, the word lonesome uh, being something with a positive connotation as opposed to Alabama and Hank Williams, I'm so lonesome I could I could cry. Do you think that, that there's a way that we can balance community and the individual in a way that we're just failing at right now? Well, I, I of course, lean very much toward the individualist side of things. I mean, in, in the sense, I mean, individual, it seems to me, in the, like the 19th and the early 20th century in America, it meant people who were self-sufficient in the sense that they made their own judgments about things and they, 
you know, they carried their own weight and so on. It did not mean that they were selfish. It didn't mean that they were out for number one, you know. That's a kind of meaning that has come into the language, and we've lost the ability to say, you know, that Abraham Lincoln was a great individual in, in the sense that he could weather things, he could see beyond immediate miseries and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. Strength is what individualism used to be associated with, you know. And um, and it's become very much associated now with with selfishness of a kind. That is the historic meaning in languages like French, but not in not in American language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know I I talk all the time, of course, about what human beings are, just physically and in terms of their nervous systems and all the rest of it. You know, these I get that from Calvin too, and from a lot of the earlier writers. We are so fantastically made, so strangely and wonderfully made. We're we're for our own use and we're for our own pleasure. You know, we should learn that we have gifts. We should learn that we have strengths. We should learn that we really are unique. Our our purpose is not to you know camouflage ourselves so that we fit into some imagined general other. Um, that you know that if we think about our lives, we will enjoy them. Mm. That's what all the old all these lovely old Puritans and so on that I lo- I love to read. The beauty of language and the beauty of thought, all that is so available to them, so enjoyed by them. I think they're the most joyful strand of Christianity that has existed. And uh, the Puritans, so of course, are. they're yeah. Hmm. So of course, they're thought of in precisely the other way. Well, it's also true that the Old Testament is is often thought of as a joyless and and kind of mean <laughs> uh, text by even by yeah. a lot of Christians. But you go back to the Old Testament uh, constantly, and as a matter of fact, one of my uh, favorite scenes in the Gilead trilogy is when Lila starts reading the Bible and she starts reading Ezekiel, and you can see <laughs> Reverend Ames' conflict. Of, well, it's kind of a kind of a bleak book, uh, <laughs> but she finds a great deal of hope and solace there. And I'm with her. Uh, I, I think that the, the theme of exile in, in Ezekiel really does make sense of things. Uh, but y- you've indicated that we've even within the church kind of lost a great deal when it comes to the Old Testament and and knowing the Old Testament. It's very true. I'm giving a series of lectures now at Cambridge in England. Um, I've given four, and I have four to give still in the fall. Um, It's called the Halcyon Lecture. And and, uh, I'm doing a, you know, really a quite a radical reconsideration of how the Old Testament is to be read. that the scholarly thing, you know, the higher criticism or documentary hypothesis or however it is described, I think is a complete mistake, and has a, it has its foundations in in uh, an essay by Feldhausen that is anti-Semitic. There's no question that mm. it is. He ends up by saying, "How are we going to get rid of Judaism?" You know. Mm. And uh, the fact that something as influential as that critical theory has been could be based on thinking with that kind of, you know, foundation, and it's just astonishing to me. Part of the answer always, always, is that it's a very famous 
essay by a very famous man, therefore no one reads it. Hmm. When you think about well, – we have all sorts of people that listen to this program. Uh, many of them aren't religious at all even, uh, but many of them, uh, probably most of them are evangelical Christians, and most of uh, – and many of them uh, would teach maybe Sunday school or, or preach uh, in churches. What counsel would you give to people who teach and preach the Bible uh, when it comes to, to speaking to the world as it is now? Uh, you know, I just don't I, – I don't know what – you know, I don't know what the world is now. I really don't. It has so many layers of, um, you know, conversations and representations and so on of all these different kinds I you know, I, I've been watching a lot of news lately, like everybody else in the country, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and I follow it closely. It's like some endless chess game or something, you know, and then I think afterwards, of course, this has, what wherever you're watching, it has, it's a made object, you know, somebody's making sure the lighting is right. Somebody's making sure that, you know, uh, that certain kinds of things are ready at certain points and all this kind of thing. And you think this is, however seriously, however responsibly they do this, it's an artificial consciousness that distracts me from what consciousness actually feels like, you know? Mm. And it it necessarily, uh, well, it distracts people from, I think, the workings of their own mind. So much does now. Um, And I think that, uh, I don't know, I, I feel sorry for the world at large. I don't have... I can't condemn it at the moment because I think it tends to be lost in the same sort of maze that I am, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I things happen that seem to me to be catastrophically wrong. And I know that there are, I don't know, people who can reconcile themselves to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... <laughs> My my great hope is, of course, that God is free relative to the creation, <laughs> mm. and that the uh, the present will not, and you know, go on endlessly or go be part of a vortex of decline that we will not be able to escape. Mm. Would you agree with uh, Frederick Beekner? Uh, several years ago, said that writing uh, fiction taught him how to recognize a plot. And that then he started to realize that there was a plot line to his own life. That rings true to me of having this intuition that somehow in some way things are really are working together towards something. Have you noticed that developing in your own life as, as you've as you've written over the years? Um, I don't know if plot is the word I would use hmm. because um, it's an, a way in which my life has there's a great consistency in it, but it seems sort of discontinuous, you know. I mean, I have done very improbable things. I have written a book on plutonium. Mm. <laughs> Boy, is that a hard sell. <laughs> I have I have written on Puritanism. I have written, you know, a book about a pastor dying in Iowa in 1956. I have done everything that ought to have a guaranteed failure up to this point. <laughs> and it... <laughs> I mean, it it is, you know, it's a lovely joke, but it does seem kind of like a joke, you know. I've immersed myself in in subjects that, in theory, nobody else is interested in. And it turns out that people can be very interested in them, you know. Mm. Um, So I I did not set out to be a writer. 
having I, I wrote my first book assuming it would not be published. Um, I wrote my, my second book kind of half assuming it wouldn't be published. I mean, I'm very grateful for it all, mm. and I don't feel as if I myself am necessarily the source of these things. They don't reflect decisions in the sense that decisions um, are what people generally construct their lives out of, you know? Mm. Puritans talk a lot about spiritual disciplines and about spiritual formation. Are there practices in your life that, that you would say are the way that you, that you seek to shore yourself up spiritually? You know, I don't, I'm grateful to be able to say that I don't really feel as though um, my spiritual state is particularly fragile, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not afraid of not being within, you know, within the being of God in a sense, you know? Mm. I think a lot of people, they, they act like they're carrying some little glass of nitroglycerin through life, you know? And they, You know, if they spill it, everything will explode, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think that's how God relates to us, actually. And I think that, that the fear that comes with that is something that's very disabling from the point of view of many Christian people. Hmm. Uh, what's your idea of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, what, what comes to mind first for you? Um, well, you know, when I, I, I have written what I you know, call a Christology. I mean, one of those essays, you know, where I actually tried to make myself sit down and think through that. I have in my living room uh, orthodox images of Christ mm-hmm. in, you know, the, the, the Pantocrator or Petrocrator, how mm-hmm. he said. I think that a problem in Western Christianity is truly that we forget that the crucifixion was the beginning of something other, qualitatively other, you know? Mm. That it's, that it, I mean, people, I mean, so much of popular religion is taken up with the idea that, that Jesus died for our sins, you know? Jesus died to transform reality. And, and I think it's a... Which would include dying for our sins, would you say? Pardon? Which, which Pardon? would include, would you say, dying for our sins as well? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the being beyond sin is a part of this sort of glorious consequence mm. of the, pass through the passage through the crucifixion. I think that we forget that Jesus is God. That is the central tenet of our belief. Mm. And uh, that the reconception of God around this pervasive, utter act of grace, that's, that's what it's about, you know? Hmm. Um, I, don't, I think that uh, the appropriation of the idea of, of Jesus' suffering to, as a balm for our own sense of sinfulness, I think that that is tends to fix people at a very early stage in their conception of what Christianity ought to be. If you had to choose one hymn and one book of the Bible uh, to be be with (laughs) you the rest of your life, what would you choose? Oh, let me think. I like the old hymns, you know, the old Charles Wesley hymns. Mm -hmm. But they're all eluding me now. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Mm. Isn't that a great hymn? That's that's great. And uh, I also book of the Bible. That's that's harder. It depends on you know which one I've been looking at. Mm. 
I like Ezekiel. You know, I, I taught Bible to my students at the workshop, and for writers to read that amazing beginning where something is described without being described, and, you know, the apophatic, amazing vision, mm-hmm. they loved that. And that made me realize what it is, how beautiful it is as a piece of writing, mm. how amazing. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you on that one. Well, thank you, Marilyn Robinson, for sharing your gifts uh, with the world. Uh, I'm very grateful to you for the way that you've helped me to, to see life. And so thank you for having this conversation with me today. Well, thank you. Well, that was a fascinating uh, conversation, Marilyn Robinson. I'm sitting here uh, again looking at, uh, at many of her, her books in front of me. And the way that I read is I put book flags Office Depot, book flags, at places uh, in the text that I want to be able to recover uh, quickly and find where I've, I've highlighted and marked. And I, I look at these books, and there are book flags everywhere. And I can open them back up and see things that I've forgotten about, but spoke to me very meaningfully at one point and still do. And so it was a joy uh, to, to talk to her today. I, I found it interesting that she... She said that we, we sometimes want to focus on Christ dying for our sins uh, rather than Christ uh, changing all of reality. I am not sure I agree with her on that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm quite sure that I don't agree with her on that. Uh, it seems to me what she means is that it's easy for us to, to become self-focused and to, and to think only in terms of my uh, sins through the, the grace of, of Christ. But I don't think we give too much focus to that. As a matter of fact, I don't think we give enough focus to that. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people are bearing the kind of agony uh, and despair that she talks about. As a matter of fact, what it caused me to think about was a, another line in Gilead uh, when uh, Reverend Ames is talking and he says this, that's the strangest thing about this life, about being in the ministry. People change the subject when they see you coming. And then sometimes those very same people come into your study and they tell you the most remarkable things. There's a lot under the surface of life. Everyone knows that. A lot of malice and dread and guilt and so much loneliness where you wouldn't really expect to find it either. I think that's true. And I think that Marilyn Robinson has done uh, remarkable work in showing us something of that, what John Calvin would call depravity, but also uh, beyond that, grace of a God who is immortal, invisible, God only wise. That's true. This is Russell Moore, Marilyn Robinson fan. Glad to talk to her today. And you've been listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.